U.S. re-engagement in multilateralism. That the United States' real strength isn't just in the numbers behind its economy or the numbers behind its military, but it's in its alliance network around the world. Developments in the Quad. The fact that India, in spite of this border dispute, asked Australia to join the Malabar exercises shows that there's been a change in thinking. And Indonesia's foreign policy. The most substantial element of the talks was the signing of a defence agreement between Indonesia and Japan that in effect will provide an opportunity for Japan to export defence materiel and technologies. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In the earliest days of the Biden administration, the United States has made it clear that it is re-engaged in multilateralism. Peter Jennings is joined by Professor Gordon Flake, CEO of the Perth US Asia Centre, to discuss Biden's foreign policy agenda, climate policies, and the importance of alliances. So, Gordon Flake, welcome to ASPE and to Canberra. Honoured to be here, thank you. Gordon, we're seeing uh, under the US President Biden that uh, the President is, is seeking to engage much more strongly through multilateral mechanisms, and he's even o- open to promoting new mechanisms like the Quad um, at, at the leaders' level. What's Biden's agenda? Well, first and foremost, it's to present a sharp contrast to the previous U.S. administration. So we've gone from America first to alliance first. Uh, And it's really born of an understanding that the United States' real strength isn't just in the numbers behind its economy or the numbers behind its military, but it's in its alliance network around the world, its friendships, uh, in the organizations that it had a very important role in building. And that's something that uh, previous U.S. President Donald Trump didn't understand. He never understood multilateralism in its forms. He didn't understand the the institutions, the standards, and the norms which which augment and, and amplify America's influence in the region. Mm-hmm. Uh, and clearly the Biden team does. They're much more traditional and not, not partisan. This is not a Democrat-Republican issue. It's candidly an American issue, understanding uh, these organizations. I, like you, I trust, was particularly encouraged by the leaders' meeting of the Quad, which took place this past March 13th. The fact that that took place just six weeks after the inauguration of a new president implied a lot of forethought and planning. Uh, If the Quad foreign ministers meeting that took place in Tokyo last October uh, was an indication, in my mind, of being more about Chinese overreach than American outreach, uh, the leaders' meeting that, that took place virtually and produced not just a, a joint statement, uh, but a, a, a joint op-ed mm. in the Washington Post was much more about American outreach, and it really goes to exactly what you pointed in your question. What about the broader question of multilateralism, like in the United Nations, the World Health Organization? Um, the U.S. has got a bit of work to do, I guess, to bring itself back into the into the forefront of those groups. It does. Um, probably the area where is the biggest challenge and where there's likely to be the biggest delay is in trade in in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and that is just because of the Democratic Party's own uh, hesitancy on that front. But whether it's the Paris Climate Accords, the World Trade Organization, et cetera, I think what you're going to see is, is the U.S. seeking to repair reputational damage and then once again assert some form of leadership in that format, but 
if you, you trust their words, leadership exerted with a certain degree of humility in understanding what's happened in the last four years. Yes. Gordon, I guess if there was any Australian concern about what a new American appetite for multilateralism might might present, it, it's in the area of climate. And of course, now we have John Kerry uh, has been appointed US Special Presidential Envoy for Climate. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison is going to be speaking with a large group of uh, prime ministers and world leaders on this issue. Does this present um, a particular challenge or, or complicating factor from an Australian perspective? Uh, there, there has been a lot of discussion of that in the Australian media since the election of, of, of President Biden, particularly given the priority he has placed on climate and his decision to appoint as probably the most high-profile member of his 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 team, mm-hmm. uh, special yeah, czar for climate change, uh, former senator, former presidential candidate John Kerry. I, I don't have deep concern on that front. Uh, Australia actually, in performance, continues to outperform most of the OECD. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may not quite match them in rhetoric. Uh, I anticipate that in the full spectrum of issues that the United States is going to be working with Australia upon, this will be important. But it, it certainly won't have primacy of place and it won't be an obstacle to working together to combat Chinese you know, influence in the region, their coercive activities, the work of the Quad. Um, and in fact, I anticipate the United States will go first and foremost with the strategy of trying to set an example, which will make it easier for, for politics here in Australia as well. Mm-hmm. It's one thing for the U.S. to be scolding from the side and not doing something. If the U.S. leads by example, uh, that certainly makes it easier, not just for Australia, but for other countries around the globe. Another challenge in this area, though, is, of course, um, at least the possibility that the U.S. and China might be able to work more effectively together on climate. Is, is it possible to do that at, at the same time as the U.S. is pushing back hard against Chinese intellectual property theft or Chinese movement in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Straits? We'll see. <laughs> uh, that's clearly the intent of, yes. of the Biden administration. They want to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time in the relationship with China. They want to balance their very real and growing security concerns, uh, concerns about cyber involvement on the part of China, their concerns about human rights, their concerns uh, about international standards, laws, and norms, and also still find areas of cooperation with China. And, and climate change is, is the most obvious area where there are shared interests. When I say we'll see, it really depends on how China Mm -hmm. responds, whether or not they're willing to to bifurcate these issues and and to operate on a two-track system. So far, the signs aren't great, right? Um, But that's that's okay. I mean, the truth is, as long as the U.S. has messaging on this front and that they're open and transparent on what they're doing on this front, uh, you can argue that both China and the United States have independent interest to make progress on this front. It doesn't necessarily require a consortium or any negotiations to be helpful globally. Uh, But I'm I'm not entirely sure yet how China is going to respond to the Biden approach. That's something we're going to have to monitor. Indeed. Well, a a clear area of risk in, in the immediate term uh, is of course the situation in Taiwan. And, and we, we see now almost daily, uh, PLA aircraft incursions into Taiwanese airspace, uh, much more aggressive Chinese rhetoric about, uh, as they would call it, the reunification of, of the province. What's what's your assessment about the scale of the risk o- over Taiwan right now? It has to be on the top of anyone's concerns for a flashpoint in our region. You know, there are long-standing issues like 
North Korea, the North Korean nuclear program that I've spent a lot of time focusing on. There are longstanding issues like the South China Seas and territorial disputes there. But the underlying dynamic in cross-strait relations has shifted in a very serious direction. So think back a decade ago, we were all uh, celebrating the fact that uh, it was off the front burner, that uh, with uh, a KMT or Kuomintang kind of government in Taiwan, there was much more focus on integration. There were 500,000 Taiwanese businessmen living in Shanghai. And it seemed that we were moving away from a more confrontationary uh, approach, both in the mainland and in Taiwan. Since then, there's been a dramatic reversal in the trajectory of China. Xi Jinping's China is not Hu Jintao's China. It's not even early Xi Jinping's China. Uh, and their own, what I would describe as internal insecurities, is, is being reflected externally. And whether it is in the response to the COVID pandemic or, or human rights or in their willful year diplomacy, uh, it, it's, it's manifesting in a lot of different ways. But there's no area where it is more clearly manifest than in the case of, of Taiwan just because it is so central to the Communist Party's self-identity. Uh, you know, the, the, the Mao Zedong speech in 1949 that they've, China has stood up and they're ending a 100-year period of division and shame has one outstanding agenda item, and that is Taiwan. And the real problem, and this I'm not sure many in the public sphere have made this connection, is that we no longer have the gradual integration scenario open and available to us, and that is Hong Kong. Uh, the, the fundamental premise behind Hong Kong and Macau, and Hong Kong in particular, was that there was going to be one country, two systems. And that was structured in such a way that it would show to the people of Taiwan that you could have an economic and political federation or gradual integration uh, without the use of force, without, the, without conflict. And, and Chinese actions in Hong Kong and the suppression of democracy in Hong Kong has essentially meant that from a Taiwanese perspective, that option is no longer there. Mm. And the actions that you described of increasing Chinese provocations against Taiwan are pushing the Taiwanese to be more serious than they ever have about their own defense and pushing countries like the United States to be more proactive on that front. And that then puts us in a position where there's a tension mm. uh, in terms of do we have time? And it's a tension from a Chinese perspective as well, because, you know, there's a lot of focus on Project 2049, and some have pushed it forward to 2035, and others are saying, no, it might be 2024. Yeah, and the question really is, you know, how long uh, can the party wait to solve this fundamental for them issue uh, in terms of who China is as a nation, uh, and, and what are the trend lines pushing them towards it? And right now, I see them pushing Taiwan to run further and faster away from the mainland, and that is inherent with risks. Do you um, accept the uh, the Christopher Pine line that perhaps five to six years is a sort of a time frame within which conflict might become a, a possibility? So there was a lot of coverage of that speech by Christopher Pine. I, I found it pretty common sense, right? Mm -hmm. If you've been following the news for the last two years, that clearly we're closer to a conflict today than we were five years ago. And that's just based on those underlying trends that I was talking about. The time frame is, uh, to be honest, we, we may come to thinking that six to five years was, or five to six years is, is uh, a long time. A, long frame, time. So a bit mm -hmm. of a luxury. Mm -hmm. uh, that really depends on China. Yeah. And again, this is my worry, is that it's driven by, from my own perspective, internal insecurities within China, mm. and that's dangerous. Mm.
That's really dangerous. Uh, in the brief time that we've got left, I wanted to turn to a more domestic issue. Uh, you, you're a long-term West Australian resident now, I think a loyal Perth resident. West Australia finds itself in, I, I think, a particular uh, difficulty because of the China situation. A huge volume of our national wealth comes from the export of commodities from Western Australia. What's your take on how the state needs to position itself to kind of handle this, this risk? Our institutional mantra at the Perth US Asia Centre from our founding on has been diversify, diversify, diversify. And that's diversify not only in export commodities, but also in, in the destination of our exports. Mm -hmm. uh, because as a country, and particularly WA as a state, we've got an over-reliance on a single customer and a single commodity, that being China and iron ore. The last year has been an eye-opener uh, because if I'm really candid, despite our mantra, diversify, 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 in 2021, we're less diverse than we were in, in 2014 when, mm -hmm. when the, the center was established. There is a new level of receptivity in the private sector in Australia more broadly, and that comes at the hands of a rather aggressive economic attack that we have suffered at the hands of China, not just because of our call for a, a WTA uh, investigation into the origins of COVID, but because of Australia being Australia, to use the words of the Prime Minister. And if you look at that long 14-point list of demands laid out by, by the Chinese ambassador here in a leaked document, that gives you a pretty clear indication of where the fundamental discrepancies lie. Interestingly enough, while Western Australia has been at the, the coal front, has, has suffered the brunt of the economic impact of Chinese sanctions in barley uh, and, and in wine uh, and in, in, in several other sectors, the primary commodity has not yet suffered, and that's yeah. iron ore. Mm. But I do think that there is a keen awareness on the part of our iron ore sector and our resource sector more broadly that China, understandably, is doing everything it can to reduce its relative dependence on Australia and Western Australia. So so where we are right now is insustainable in the long run, mm. just because whether it's Africa or whether it's, whether it is Brazil, uh, China is seeking to reduce that dependence. And that just means that things are good now. Uh, we really haven't taken the hit that you might imagine we might have taken. WA now has 4.8% unemployment rate economically, is doing really, really well, but that's not long-term. The diversified mandate is more important than ever before. So I'm, I'm back to a sort of five to 10-year time frame. Seems to me to be probably what China needs to start to reduce its dependence on Australian iron ore. There's a big debate about that, and it's a really important debate. Uh, on the one hand, you never want to underestimate China and their capacity to throw national-level resources at solving market challenges. On the other hand, China is now taking steps and actions which are antithetical to his own interests. Mm -hmm. So their relationship with Brazil is not really good right now. Yeah. And that's because of the same diplomatic conundrum we were talking about before. Similarly, I don't think that it's going to be smooth sailing for them in Africa. Mm -hmm. and, it, and we also shouldn't underestimate the tremendous accomplishment of the private sector here in Western Australia in the resource sector. It's one thing to take a centuries-old industry like iron ore and figure out how to dig up rocks, crack them up and ship them off. But to do that at 40 tons, uh, you know, $40 a metric ton freight on board is a stunning accomplishment yeah. and it's not easy. Uh, and so, yes, China will be willing to take an economic hit they did so in, uh, they've been suffering this year as a result of their economic attacks on Australia and coal. 
You know, there have been blackouts and rolling blackouts in China because of that. And clearly, they will be willing to pay a higher price for iron ore coming out of Brazil or Africa. It's just, how do you do the volumes? I mean, we, we've got the best reserves and the best volumes and the best capabilities in the world. I'm not so sure that there's a five-year, six-year, ten-year cliff where cliff. we're going to drop off it. Mm -hmm. It's a hard thing to do. Uh, and, and other countries, Brazil or Africa, don't have the, the governance, the capabilities, the technology and abilities we have here. So I'm a little bit less alarmist about that than some. Gordon, it's a fascinating conversation. Thank you for coming east, uh, for joining us for our Aspie Masterclass, which will be actually in the past after by the time we uh, have this podcast up on air. But thanks for joining us on Policy, Guns and Money. Tremendous pleasure and an honour. Thank you. Following the first leader-level Quad Summit in March 2021, Michael Shoebridge is joined by Dr. Lavina Lee, Senior Lecturer in Modern History, Politics and International Relations at Macquarie University. They consider recent developments in the Quad grouping, as well as Australia-India bilateral relations. Well, Lavina, great to talk to you about India and the Quad. I know you've written uh, about this issue over the years, so I suppose you've got the benefit of being able to give us that perspective through time. Obviously, the most striking thing for me with the Quad is something that we were told was absolutely impossible, was never going to happen, happened in March this year, and that is that there was a Quad leaders meeting with uh, the Prime Ministers of India, Japan and Australia and the US President uh, having a virtual leaders meeting and doing more than just talking about issues, uh, taking some important actions on some pressing problems. So thinking about India in this, how did it come to this? How did the non-aligned India become an active participant in the Quad, including at national leadership level? Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. What I think is that uh, you're right to say that there's been a great deal of scepticism about the Quad. You know, many people have said to me over the past when I've written about the Quad and I've been an advocate for the Quad and its resurgence, they've said to me things like, you know, how can you have these four countries with divergent threat perceptions, uh, divergent uh, national priorities, geographic strategic priorities, differing ability to ab absorb the potential costs of retaliation by China. Despite the fact that they're democracies, all of these differences are too difficult to overcome. So the, the Quad, yes, it might re-emerge, but will be nothing more than a, a talking shop, a reason to provide some optics, but really that it wouldn't, wouldn't really have a, a strong agenda. And I think from um, 2017, I, I, I think initially that seemed to be the case. There weren't any Quad joint statements. Each country will release their own statement with slightly different emphasis. There, up until last year, there was a great emphasis on the fact that there was a lack of any military exercises between the four countries. Yes, there have been a, a deepening of military cooperation on a trilateral level amongst all of the Quad countries, but yet no quadrilateral military exercises. Mm, with the Malabar um, exercise held up as the iconic thing showing what the countries weren't willing to do weren't willing to do. And Australia has been banging on the door of the Malabar exercises probably since around 2015. So it's been a long time coming. But then we see in, I think, November of 2020, that India 
invited Australia to join the Malabar exercises for the first time. And I think that's um, interesting as well because this occurred in a period where India and China, it's ongoing now, but were locked in a tense standoff in eastern Ladakh, uh, border dispute where for the first time in around 30 years, there were actual lo lives lost on the border. So it's, it's an extremely tense situation. And in the past, um, India was very reticent to further the Quad, that is true, um, because it feared that its membership of the Quad might encourage in, uh, China to punish it in different ways. And I think the fact that India, in spite of this border dispute, asked Australia to join the Malabar exercises shows that there's been a change in thinking and on the part of the Indian leadership about um, China's intentions and motivations. You, you read a lot more, um, or even via the statements of Modi and uh, the external affairs minister, Jai Shankar, um, they really do cast China as a more expansionist and an imperialist power. And they're much stronger in, in standing up for India's territorial mm. So uh, you think interests. that things like joining a Quad leaders meeting the Indian perception was, well, China is doing what it's doing on our border anyway. So what are we fearing that China isn't going to do anyway? And yeah. instead, what are the advantages out of this quad grouping? Absolutely. So in the past, they had a, a tense border dispute in Doklam, only in, I think in 2017. And in the, in the following couple of years, um, the Indians, even though they held firm and opposed Chinese salami slicing tactics there. They tried to placate, they tried to reset relations. They call it the Wuhan spirit, um, the, the meeting between the leaders of the two countries. Um, but even despite all of that, then they see the border crisis in 2020, uh, where exactly the same type of activities occurred by the Chinese encroachment, sal salami slicing tactics were used. And I think they did then have to reconsider, what do we get out of this if we play nice, if we try and be kind of reciprocal? China is not playing ball. So if, if we gave concessions, it's not as though China is giving us any concessions. Um, you know, the interesting thing yeah. to me in that is I think that's the same perception around Chinese behaviour that the other Quad member nations have come to. The, like the debate in Australia about let's reset the relationship. Remember, before our last election, uh, the Chinese government were sort of signalling that the, if the Labor government won, that was their chance to reset the relationship by changing a whole bunch of things that the previous government had done that Beijing didn't like. Uh, and the reciprocity was really not anything from Beijing. Um, they wanted to see the compromises from Australia first. And I think you can see the same with the signalling of Beijing to Washington in the lead yep. up to the Biden election. Uh, so all, all of the countries are getting the same message from China. The way for you to have a productive relationship with us is for you to compromise your own interests without me compromising mine. And Absolutely. I don't know what's happening, but I think that's a really strong converging force uh, that's driving the Quad to cooperate. Absolutely. So in a, in a great way, I think um, Beijing is the driving force of the Quad. So when they um, make statements about an emerging 
Asian NATO or that um, the Quad is designed to contain China. They're doing more than anyone else to actually cause the Quad countries to have a converging threat perception um, and to increasingly see the parallels between the border dispute between India and China and the expansionist territorial behaviour of China in the East and South China Seas. So Japan and uh, Japan particularly has been trying to link the East and South China Sea disputes under Prime Minister Abe. He was trying to encourage India to also consider uh, the behaviour of China in the Western Pacific as being akin to what India was facing in the Indian Ocean. But India was always very reticent to um, expose itself to the potential for retaliation. And I think now they've, they've realised that that's a failing strategy and that mm. they would have greater leverage. Um, if, you, if you're going to think about China's behaviour in India's own region, it is effectively uh, what India perceives, which I think is actually objectively uh, supported, is that China is improving its relations with all South Asian neighbours of India for its own strategic purposes. Um, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, for example, the Maldives uh, under the previous government. And of course, it is furthering its relationships with Pakistan. Um, mm. It forged ahead with CPEC, even though uh, CPEC would go straight through disputed territory um, that India claims as its own. So for, from the Indian perspective, China doesn't reciprocate if mm. it protests. And imagine uh, Beijing's it, reaction if there was a CPEC parallel uh, being implemented by India uh, right on um, China's periphery. So, yes, absolutely. another great example of lack of reciprocity there. Double standards. Uh, one thing yeah. I've heard you talk about is India's changing perception of Australia as a quad partner because I think we had a bit of a reputation for unreliability uh, in Delhi. Um, but uh, I think you've got some uh, some reasons for thinking that that's changed. Um, look, I think in my travels to India over the years, I was persistently asked about two things. One, why did Australia backtrack on its decision to sell uranium to India? And that was considered to be a, a prime example of Australia's unreliability, that as governments ca came and went, that uh, our commitment to India would also deviate. So they, they really didn't see us as a re reliable partner. The other thing I would say is that they were always very sceptical about Australia because of our strong economic relationship with China and that we, um, if India were to fully commit, commit to something like the Quad, um, that they would fear that if Australia was put under pressure that we would fold, we would withdraw again and then India potentially would be exposed to retaliation by not being the first mover in that sense. And what I think... Um, when I said earlier that China has actually pushed the Quad closer together, the fact that Australia has persistently, uh, I think since around 2016, made some very hard decisions about our 5G networks, uh, China's participation in our NBN by introducing foreign interference legislation, uh, all of these types of things, and, and then, of course, last year calling for an investigation yes. into and, the coronavirus. And since that time... Since that time uh, resisting the extreme economic coercion around Australian trade with China in, in a whole lot of commodities. Absolutely. Yeah. So on, on that point, um, I think the fact that Australia has stood firm 
that we haven't backtracked, um, that we see that our national interests are at stake and that even though our economic interests can sometimes clash with those security interests, that the security interests are paramount. I think that has actually given India a lot of strategic reassurance about our commitment and our steadfastness. So I would say that India is much more positive about Australia because it can see that Australia is willing to make hard decisions, that it is very much a strong convergence in their perceptions of the Chinese threat. Yeah, how important do you think the personal leadership relationship, you know, the sort of Modi Morrison bromance is there? Um, look, I think always... Um, I think increasingly, actually, as I've the more I've studied foreign policy decision making, the more I've realised that personal relationships actually matter. So in in the past, I've often thought, well, um, surely national interests come first and personalities come second. But you can see how some countries, say for example, Japan during the Trump administration, the relationship between Abe and Trump was very important. Um, I think our government, Morrison's relationship with Trump was also very good and very strong. And uh, on that basis, I think we, we actually did quite well under a Trump administration compared to other allies and partners around the world. Um, and I think that you would say the same, that the Australia-India relationship has definitely blossomed under this um, more personal understanding, personal relationship between Morrison and Modi. So, Lavinia, we're almost out of time, but I suppose the last thing I'd, I'd like your thoughts on is what is the future for the Quad? So we've had this extremely positive early meeting of the national leaders with uh, the US president committing early leadership time to that. I think a very uh, symbolic uh, gesture from him. But then the other interesting thing to me is they, they did decide some practical actions together, including around the pandemic. Do you think that is the path the Quad's now on, that it's got well beyond dialogue and now it's into practical action? Yeah, I, I definitely think you're right. It's, you know, one of the deep criticisms of the Quad was that it was seen to be a talking shop um, and didn't seem to have any practical initiatives. So it was all about framing the problem but not really providing solutions. And I think this early leaders me meeting has shown that it, there is a practical agenda, that the Quad is a flexible, action-oriented, newly emerging institution, and it is really tackling not only or, or focusing purely on countering China, which I think in the Trump administration era was necessary to frame the question, to frame the problem and to pose it as a countering measure. But now it, I think the Quad under the Biden administration, it's moving forward and it's trying to position the Quad as a provider of public goods, um, as a provider of, of real alternatives for the region alternatives to a China-led order. So public goods in the form of, in this case, so far it's vaccine diplomacy, the promise of a billion doses of Johnson & Johnson vaccines. And you mm. can see how um, each member of the Quad is working within its strengths and compensating for the weaknesses of others. So you have the United States and Japan funding, funding the project uh, largely. You have then Australia focusing on uh, the most difficult countries to distribute the vaccine to. And then you've got India being the manufacturing hub for mm. the whole operation. So that shows how the four can work together 
say, is a practical example of global supply chains and the reorienting of supply chains away from a China-led order towards a, an order based on democracies that are trusted, trusted partners that share values and interests. Um, the other two working groups that were set up were to do with supply change, chains and critical technology and also climate change. And I think that's um, something that sometimes is missed about the Quad. There's an overemphasis on the military aspect and what will the Quad do about the South China Sea or the East China Sea? Will it confront China? Will it do more phone-ups, mm. all those kinds of things? But I think the, China, the challenge of China to the US-led order is more than just a military challenge. It's a, a challenge in terms of geotechnology, um, on critical supply chains. It, it is really a broad-based economic and technological challenge. And that's mm -hmm. where I think the Quad partners are coming together to actually think seriously through these working groups about um, how do we develop a 5G network that might be based on not so uh, restrictive and closed um, 5G networks that where you're dependent on the vendor. How do we have open 5G networks where many different countries can be involved in it and build build on it. They're talking more about putting together international standards for data. So when we think about China and um, the pernicious effects of um, Chinese artificial intelligence, um, the promotion of technology to autocratic governments, those kinds of things, how can the Quad countries actually come together to promote and really establish standards on Ooh. data collection, where technology can support civil society and not lead to the erosion of democratic governance in our region. I think that point you make about the Quad uh, being an alternative source of public goods, uh, that, that really is at the heart of that notion that there's been a lot of talking about, but there's been less substance around it free and open Indo-Pacific. And in fact, it's bigger than the Indo-Pacific. Some of these are global issues. So I think the way you've sketched out that future agenda of the Quad uh, is very insightful. It gets beyond that narrower security focus and it really fits very well with uh, the, the strategic environment and uh, the way these national leaders are behaving. So thanks so much, Levina. We could probably have multiple sessions around this, but that, that's been a great start. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Michael. Finally, ASPE research intern Hilary Mansour speaks with Dr. David Engel, head of ASPE's Indonesia program. They discuss Australia's defence equipment and technology transfer agreement with Japan, what the agreement means for Indonesia, and how Indonesia's recent international engagements complement their foreign policy strategy. Indonesia's Foreign Minister Retno Masudi and Defence Minister Prabowo Subianto have recently been involved um, in meetings with their overseas counterparts. At the end of March, they were in Japan for the second Japan-Indonesia 2 plus 2 meeting, with the 2 plus 2 referring to the two Ministers for Foreign Affairs and the two Ministers for Defence. Following this, Foreign Minister Retno Masudi went straight to China for a meeting in Fujian. But this time she was joined by Indonesia's Trade Minister Muhammad Lufti and State-Owned Enterprises Minister Eric Tohir. David, what was the purpose of each of these meetings and what did they achieve? In the case of the Tokyo talks, this represented the second iteration of the 2 plus 2 talks between Japan and Indonesia. And even though we don't have a clear guide as to what was said, it's 
pretty clear that the, the talks would have been expansive at covering a whole range of regional and bilateral issues. The most substantial element of the talks, however, was the signing of a defence agreement between Indonesia and Japan that, in effect, will provide an opportunity for Japan to export defence material and technologies. Technologies and material that Indonesia is very keen to acquire because of its own emerging strategic and security issues, particularly in the area north of Indonesia around the Natunas, where it's been having some issues with with China, Chinese incursions into its uh, exclusive economic zone. When it comes to the Fujian visit, the visit to China, this was undertaken by Retno, but not by Prabowo, in conjunction with uh, the other ministers you mentioned. The principal focus of those talks appear to have been both regional, and in this case, the question of Myanmar was evidently a centre of, uh, of an important part of the conversation, but also a range of bilateral economic and uh, trade-related issues. China has been an important partner of Indonesia in its development under President Widodo, particularly with regard to a range of infrastructure projects, but it has also been an important partner when it comes to addressing the COVID crisis. To that extent, I'm sure the majority of the conversation between the two, uh, the, the different parties went to those issues, and the, the presence of those other ministers, I think, would testify to that. So the differences, I think, in the case of uh, Japan, the most important element emerging out of it was in the strategic domain, but in the case of the China visit, primarily, evidently, it went to a range of economic and social questions. So there are various optics around um, Indonesia um, setting up possible agreements for defence procurement with other countries. Um, do you think this is a direct um, optic signal to China that Indonesia is hardening its approach um, and getting ready to, to deter it with, um, with more credibility? It's part of a series of moves that Indonesia has made in more recent times, especially since Prabowo assumed the role as defence minister. He has been very active, going to various countries around the world. In fact, just prior to coming to Japan, he had visited the UK and Russia, where he'd obviously talked about um, defence cooperation in, in those countries. He's been to the United States, and he's also been entertaining interests in in French material and so on. So there are many, many ways, I think, that that uh, Indonesia is signalling that it, it, it is intent on achieving what it has said is its minimum essential force to protect its territorial integrity. And that has been under some sort of uh, pressure in late. It, it has been under pressure in recent times because of China's incursions into uh, the uh, exclusive economic zone of Indonesia off the uh, the Natunas in particular. 
If we consider the optics of these two meetings, the first one being in Japan discussing weapons procurement um, and the second one being um, straight afterwards in China, um, it seems significant for Indonesia to have met with China so quickly after signing a significant defence agreement with Japan. But in fact, you wrote recently in The Strategist that these meetings are actually very consistent with Indonesia's foreign policy. Would you like to elaborate on why? The fundamental element of Indonesia's foreign policy, its so-called free and active foreign policy, is its commitment, its very rigid commitment to non-alignment. In many ways, what Retno Masudi was doing by going so quickly to China after the Japanese talks was to reaffirm the essence of that, of Indonesian foreign policy. It was a signal to China, as well as, I think, to a domestic audience in Indonesia, that Indonesia was not in any way changing its tack uh, in foreign policy terms by the new agreement that it had reached with Japan. I think this will be remain the hallmark of Indonesian foreign policy for the foreseeable future. It sends a strong signal, I think, to Japan as well, that Indonesia is a country that is not going to be changing its fundamental posture with regard to questions like the Quad and uh, other, other aspects of our regional security. What I understand from this is that although it might seem significant that Indonesia is speaking to Japan about weapons procurement, it doesn't necessarily signal um, future action for Indonesia against China or um, or even a um, strong bilateral cooperation to contain or address China. Rather, it was just one of many meetings Indonesia has been having with, with other nations um, to diversify its um, weapons procurement options. I'm wondering, given Indonesia's commitment to non-alignment, as you've discussed, what does this all mean for Australia? The extent to which Indonesia and Japan can consolidate and advance their security relationship, I think will bear significantly on the extent to which Indonesia is capable of maintaining a credible deterrence, and therefore, I think, preserving a degree of stability in the South China Sea. To the extent that that happens, and Japan is well-placed to be part of Indonesia's quest for that minimum essential uh, force, then I think the ramifications for Australia are good. Uh, The more Indonesia can, by its own actions, preserve its territorial integrity, it can help preserve regional stability and that will be beneficial to Australia's national security interests. Thank you so much. That's all for this ep of Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode next week.